Well, it's a joy once again to be able to bring God's Word to you today. Um, We're going to be continuing our series in the book of Esther. And so if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me to Esther chapter 2. We're going to be picking up where we left off last week with uh, Esther chapter 2, beginning with verse 19. And then we're going to continue through the end of chapter 3. So Esther chapter 2, beginning with verse 19, and I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word this morning. Esther chapter 2, beginning with verse 19. Hear now the word of God. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may be put into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, and the people also. Do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction 
to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Well, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for all of your word, but we thank you especially this morning for the book of Esther. Lord, we pray that you would teach us from your word, that your spirit would work among us, and that you would teach us what you want to teach us. And we pray that you would draw us to your son, Jesus Christ, and to his gospel, and that we would trust in you this morning as your word teaches us to do. We pray all of these things in the holy and the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm not sure uh, how many of you were able to tune in for the live stream last week. There was a little bit of an audio issue, I think. Um, I did record it on my phone, so it is on the website. So you do still have access to a good um, audio recording of last week's sermon. But for those of you who didn't hear or for uh, those of you who just weren't able to tune in last week, uh, we looked at chapter 2 of Esther, and I had presented the content for you in a couple of ways. We saw that um, the, God's people found themselves in a difficult situation as a result of some bad decision-making on their part. Um, you'll remember that the king of Persia before Ahasuerus, the earlier king, uh, he, when he had conquered Babylon, he had allowed all of the Israelites who were exiled there to go back to the land of Canaan. He'd issued a decree. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 1 at the end of Chronicles as well. The king let all of the people, all of the Jewish people who were exiled in Babylon, go back to the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, that's a big deal because back in the land of Israel, right, you had uh, Ezra and you had Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah and all of these guys right around this same time that were rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the gates, rebuilding the temple, reinstituting the sacrificial system, reinstituting the priesthood, beginning to worship on the Sabbath again. Um, the, Ezra was reading the law of Moses and he was explaining it to the people. I mean, it's pretty, pretty amazing stuff that was going on that was just getting started after 70 years of not happening. And there were many of the Jews, even when the decree went out that they'd be allowed to go back to their own land, there were many of the Jews that decided to stay in Persia. They were comfortable living in the pagan world. And they decided, no, we're just going to stay here. We're comfortable here. And Mordecai and Esther are among those Israelites who stayed behind in the kingdom of Persia. They took for themselves Babylonian names and they essentially assimilated into the culture. And we can kind of see that in the text from last week as Esther worked her way up in the kingdom. She worked her way up through the harem. Uh, she worked hard. And eventually she had her all-night interview with the king, and she got the job as queen of Persia. Um, it is uh, not exactly a positive 
uh, present presentation of Esther and Mordecai in chapter 2. More of a negative outlook on them. Uh, very different from Daniel. And Daniel went in, he got taken in by the king as well in his exile, but he stood for what he believed in. He wouldn't do what the king wanted. He wouldn't bow to the cultural mandates and so on. But uh, Esther doesn't do that. She hides who she is, and she goes in with the king. Now, that is sort of the uh, painting, the negative view of Esther and Mordecai. Right? You've, got, you've got some sinners here, but they're not unbelievers. And we can see that here in chapter 3, because chapter 3 is, is telling us a bit about Mordecai and continuing to set up the story of Esther. And Mordecai demonstrates a remarkable amount of faithfulness in our text today, here at the end of chapter 2 and in chapter 3. We actually see the faithfulness of Mordecai, and then how that faithfulness of Mordecai results in the triumph of his enemies. It's sort of counterintuitive, and there's a great lesson that we can learn here today is to teach us that when evil triumphs, we can trust God because God is the one who's in control. When evil triumphs, we can trust God because he is at work even when he's silent and when we can't see him. Okay, So let's look at how uh, we can learn this lesson here. Firstly, we have the faithfulness of Mordecai, and this is going to show up for us in chapter 2, verse 19, all the way up through the first four verses of chapter 3. And we actually see two major ways that Mordecai is faithful. The first thing is uh, this whole section of chapter 2 where we see Mordecai being faithful to the king of Persia. In essence, he's a good citizen. He's not just a good citizen, though. He's actually a really good government official. You'll notice that in verse 19 it says that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Uh, the king's gate in this day was sort of like the, I don't know what you compare it to, like city hall. Okay? It was the place where the leaders were present. They were debating policies. They were hearing court cases and rendering judgments. They were uh, uh, discussing what they should enact for laws. They were letting people in and out of the city. I mean, this was a, a very important place to be, was in the king's gate. And so Mordecai, by sitting in the king's gate, uh, is actually a government official. That's what our text is telling us. He's a government official. He works for the king. And while he's in city hall of the Persian Empire, he hears about a plot to kill the king. Two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, they decide they've had enough of this king, they're angry with him, and they're going to take him out. And Mordecai hears about this plot to overthrow the king. Now, what Mordecai could have done is he could have just, you know, he could have been quiet about it. He could have not said anything. Uh, I can imagine that maybe a lot of people didn't like King Ahasuerus. In fact, if you read the ancient historical accounts of this king, the ancient historian Herodotus will tell you that this king was a pretty bad king. Nobody liked him. He was greedy. He was lustful. He was just a, a great big bag of cats, essentially. You did not want to mess with him. He was a bad dude. And so lots of people probably wanted to kill him. It's pretty standard in you know, ancient monarchies. You had to battle for the throne. The king was never really safe. And so this king probably had a lot of enemies. But in this case, there were two people who thought they could pull off a plot against him. And Mordecai hears about the plot somehow. And he tells Esther, who's now queen, and she brings it before the king. And they find out about the plot, they stop it, and the king's life is saved. So we see Mordecai here being faithful to his king, being faithful to the person whom God has placed in authority over him, 
Even if Mordecai had gone back to Jerusalem like he was supposed to, he'd still have to honor the authority of the king of Persia because Persia controlled everything. So Mordecai is being a good citizen, being a good government official here. But here's what's so, what's so crazy. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, that is after Mordecai solves this plot and saves the life of the king, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all of the officials who were with him. It's sort of this, this stark chain of events here. This strange thing happens. Mordecai is faithful to the king. He saves the king's life. And then the text says, oh yeah, and then the king promoted this other guy who we've never heard of up to this point. You see, it's just strange. It's like Mordecai's faithfulness here goes entirely unnoticed. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you know that it does get noticed later on. But at this point, Mordecai's got to be thinking, hey, what just happened? You know, I just saved your life and you're promoting this other guy? That's what the text is saying here. Haman was promoted. And we're told in verse 2, all of the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. So the king, King Ahasuerus, commands. He says, hey, look, I've just promoted Haman. He's my second in command. He's in charge of all of you. You're going to bow down and pay homage to this guy whenever he's around. Mordecai refuses to do so. Now, at first glance, at least this is what I thought, and I assume maybe some of you are thinking this too. At first glance, it can seem like the reason why Mordecai refused to bow down to the king was because... um, it was somehow a, a, a contradiction of the Ten Commandments, right, where God says, you shall not worship any gods except me, etc. And if, if Mordecai bowed down, then he'd be worshiping Haman, and he'd be violating the Ten Commandments. That's not actually really what's going on here. Um, you know, if you look at uh, the story of David and Saul, we're told that David bowed down and paid homage to Saul. The same identical construction there. So in the Jewish law... You actually can bow down to earthly authorities who are in a charge over you. That's not a sign of worshiping a god or something. Uh, so more, that's not why Mordecai is, is refusing to bow down here. Rather, there's actually a much, a much more important reason, a much, a much stronger, powerful reason why Mordecai will not bow down to Haman. And we also see Mordecai's faithfulness here as well. Mordecai is not going to bow down to Haman because of what we're told in verse 1. In verse 1, Haman, this guy that the king promotes, is identified as an Agagite. I realize that probably for almost everyone in this room, unless you've studied this, which I didn't know about it until I continued to study hard on this, uh, we don't really identify with what an Agagite is. You're like, oh, he's an Agagite. Cool, moving on to the next verse. No, that's a big deal. Because the Agagites are descendants of the Amalekites. And I don't know if you've heard of the Amalekites before, but they show up quite a, quite a lot in the early Old Testament narrative. For example, in the book of Exodus, the Israelites had to fight against the Amalekites on their way to the Promised Land. In fact, that's actually the famous battle that you might remember uh, from Sunday school where uh, Moses has to keep his hands up in the air like so. And as long as he has his hands in the air, Israel's winning the battle against the Amalekites. So they're fighting them there. And when Israel does get into the land of Canaan, God commands Saul, the first king of Israel, the bad king, right before David, to go and take out all the Amalekites. They're under the ban. They're under destruction. 
God has cursed them. They are going to be destroyed. And Saul has to go wipe out everyone that's a descendant of the Amalekites. And Saul goes and he does most of the plan. He wipes out a lot of them, but he keeps the king alive. And he keeps a number of them alive, as well as a lot of their animals. So Saul disobeys. And actually, that's one of the reasons why he gets kicked off the throne. But long story short, throughout the centuries after that, the Amalekites survived They were cursed. They were supposed to be destroyed by Israel. And so the fact that Haman, a descendant of the Amalekites, has now risen to second in command of the Persian Empire is a huge sort of slap in the face to the Jewish people because now they're being required to bow down to the people that God had commanded them to destroy. And so what Mordecai does here is he refuses to bow down to Haman because he doesn't recognize Haman's authority as legitimate. Haman is under the curse of God as a descendant of the Amalekites. And the reason why Mordecai does this is because he recognizes that if he bows down, then he is going to to acquiesce to the Amalekites' victory over God's people. So you see, Mordecai has a very pious, Old Testament-rooted reason for not bowing down to Haman. Because he does not want the seed of the woman to be crushed by the seed of the serpent. Very strong biblical theology in Mordecai's mind here. So we see here that Mordecai is not only faithful to king of Persia, but he is faithful to the king of kings in honoring the curse of God and in honoring the teaching of the scriptures. Okay? So it's in this way that we can see Mordecai is faithful. But what's a little bit ironic here is it comes in verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So Haman figures out, he says, hey, this guy's not bowing down to me. What am I supposed to do? He finds out Mordecai's a Jew, and he says, oh, that's why. It's this ancient spiritual battle between my people and his people. That's why he's not bowing down. So he knows he's not just going to have to take out Mordecai. He's going to have to spite Mordecai also by taking out all of the Jewish people to prove once and for all that his people have conquered God's people. There is a profound spiritual battle happening in this text. And what's so counterintuitive about what happens here is you see the faithfulness of Mordecai, both to his king and to the king of kings, God, and yet it results in Haman seeking to destroy him. That's counterintuitive. You would expect faithfulness to produce blessing, wouldn't you? Faithfulness to produce blessing. There's a lot of preachers today that preach that. If you're just faithful to God, if you do this, if you do that, well, then you're going to get blessed. And Scripture teaches something else. So yeah, sometimes you do get blessed, right? God loves to bless his people. He does that. He's probably done that for many of us, if not all of us. But there's no one-to-one correlation between faithfulness and blessing. Sometimes, sometimes there's actually suffering that comes as a result of being faithful. 
And here's what that, that suffering begins to look like here for Mordecai, this potential suffering that is coming. You see in verses 7 and on, we have essentially the, the triumph of the enemy. So Haman, because he doesn't like Mordecai, because he wants to win this spiritual battle once and for all, he goes to the king. And he says, all right, king, uh, there's some people in your midst. And these people, this particular branch of people, well, they're troublemakers, king, because they actually won't obey your laws. These guys are troublemakers. We need to take them out. They won't obey you. They're going to obey a higher authority. And what Haman does here is he, he, sort, of, he sort of says a half-truth. Because Mordecai is disobeying the king by not bowing down to Haman. That's an order. But Mordecai understood, right? He understood that if government commands him to do something that God forbids, or forbids him from doing something that God commands then he must disobey government because government is under the authority of God. God is a higher authority. And so if God commands something and government says, nope, you can't do what God commands, well then, as a faithful child of God, he must disobey. Mordecai essentially enacts what we might call lawful civil disobedience. This is standard in Christian theology. We do have a theology of civil disobedience where if the government commands us to do something that God forbids or forbids us from doing something that God commands, we don't obey. It is our moral obligation to obey God rather than men, as Peter said in Acts. So Haman is right on the one hand, right? Because God's people, including the Jews here, do have a moral obligation to follow God rather than the king. But what's ironic here is that Mordecai just saved the king's life. Right? He just was about the greatest citizen you could be. He saved the king's life. He didn't get promoted. And yet, so Haman is sort of twisting the truth here. He's saying, on the one hand, these guys are horrible citizens. But yet we see, as long as the king's not commanding something God forbids, Mordecai is a great citizen. He bends over backwards to be the best official that he can be in that government. That's a good thing. That's his faithfulness. At work, And there, there is something to be said for us as Christians bending over backwards to be the best citizens that we can be in our own context. But that's, that's a side lesson we can save for another day. Notice what Haman does as he continues here. He's, he's proposing this plan to the king. These guys are troublemakers. Let's take out all these Jewish people. Notice he doesn't say anything to the king about the real reason. He, that's not really why... He wants to take them out. He doesn't care that Mordecai disobeys the power of the king, right? He wants to end this spiritual battle, so he's hiding that. But he says, let's take out all these people. And then he says that if you let me enact this decree, then I will pay 10,000 talents of silver. Again, another thing, kind of like the Agagite issue... Sometimes we don't identify with some of these numbers in the ancient world, right? Because we're so divorced from the currency that they used. But just to give you an example here, uh, in, in the, this period, the entire tax revenue of the whole kingdom of Persia was 15,000 pieces of silver. The whole tax revenue for a year in this time was 15,000 talents of silver. Haman says, if you let me enact this decree... I'll give you 10,000. You see what he's doing there? He's offering two-thirds of the whole tax revenue of the whole kingdom. That's a serious sum of money. 
In 2019, I think it was, yeah, in 2019, the U.S. government took in $3.5 trillion of tax revenue. Haman says, hey, king, if you let me enact this law, I'll give you a little over $2 trillion. That's a serious bribe, all right? That's a lot of money, all right? Haman is really serious about ending this spiritual war, about, dis- about crushing that seed of the woman, about crushing the line from which Christ would come. There is a spiritual battle here, and Haman is determined to stop Mordecai and all of the people. And that's why he's called in verse 10, the enemy of the Jews. That's a serious title. So the king responds. He says, yep, sounds good to me. Hands him the ring. The the decree is enacted. And the couriers of the king go out throughout all the provinces, and they deliver this decree to everyone. And then notice verse 15. This is, this is really the triumph of the enemy right here. The couriers went out hurriedly by the order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the rest of the city was thrown into confusion. I mean, you talk about confusion. Can you imagine a courier from the government running into the town square to the bulletin board and tacking up this poster? And he says, all right, here, here's the new decree from the king. I got to go. He leaves. People start gathering around. They see, oh, yeah, all the Jews are going to die on this particular day. Get ready. Well, you can imagine that would throw any city into confusion. What a horrible thing. On a certain day, all these people are going to die. And the king and Haman go into the palace and they crack a cold one. When you talk about the triumph of God's enemies, this is a horrible situation. And Mordecai doesn't know the rest of the story. God's people at this point don't know the rest of the story. We do, because we can read the back of the book and see that they win. But at this point, they don't know the story. All they know is that at this point, it seems like God's enemies are growing all around them, and like they're going to be snuffed out, and the day is fixed on the calendar for their destruction. What a horrible situation to be in. Now, we as Christians today, we don't have a day on the calendar set for our slaughter. Maybe some people would like to set that date, but we don't have that as of yet. But there's a certain sense in which we experience this sort of thing, isn't there? Where we experience this this problem where we are faithful to God, and we stumble, we make mistakes, right? We, We sin. We conform to the world in some ways, like Esther and Mordecai. We take pagan names for ourselves. We're not as bold for Christ as we could be, but we're still seeking to be faithful to our God, seeking to proclaim the message of Christ, and yet in the midst of our faithfulness, trying the best that we can, we find ourselves in situations oftentimes where it seems like the enemies of God are getting stronger and stronger, and the people of God are getting weaker and weaker where we try to to raise our kids in the word of God, and yet it seems like the world has a much more powerful influence on them than we do. I mean, you fill in the blank. There's so many times where I feel like I'm working so hard to bring the message of Christ, and yet it seems like the world is so much more powerful and the enemy is triumphing. And the temptation of myself 
Maybe your temptation, maybe the temptation of, of Mordecai and the rest of the Jews at this point would be to cry out, where is God? Where's God in all of this? Notice God's not even mentioned in this book. He's not been mentioned up to this point. Where is this God? Does he even know what's happening right now? Does he care that all of his people are about to be destroyed by their enemies? They're rising around them. The date is set for their destruction. Where is God today when it seems like the culture just dominates the world and the church is just in this this terrible reaction mode? Where is God in all of this? In our text, God is not explicitly mentioned. But God is there. And he is there to the careful observer. Notice that in verse 7, when Haman cast lots, he's seeking divine counsel. That's what you did in the ancient world if you wanted to, to sort of figure out what you should do. You cast lots to determine the will of the gods. Haman cast lots to determine if he should enact this plan, what day he should do it, and so on. Well, anyone who's read the Old Testament very carefully knows that in the book of Proverbs we're told that man casts the lots, but God determines the outcome. When the king says, into, the, into your hands, Haman, I give the Jewish people, any reader of the scriptures knows that's not the king's job. The king cannot do that. The king of the world does not have the power to hand over God's people into the hands of their enemies. No, God's people are in God's hands, and no one can snatch them out. Now you see, God's not explicitly mentioned here, but God is at work. And the text is hinting at the fact that even though it seems like God's enemies are triumphing, God is silently and providentially at work the entire time, working all things according to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. When it seems like the enemies of God are winning, when it seems like they tower over us and we are powerless and they have all the power, when it seems like our destruction is imminent, don't worry about that. God is in charge. He is sovereign over the whole thing. Trust Him. Because even when you can't see Him, even when you cry out desperately, God, where are you? He is there and He is working. Because is our God not the one who saved us already? Is he not the one who saved us already from the greatest enemy of all? See, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, with absolutely no hope in and of ourselves, dead, buried in our sin, it was God who reached down through the power of his Holy Spirit and he brought us up from the grave. And he made us alive together with Christ. And so it is by grace that we are saved. Not by our own works, but by the works of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. See, we, folks, we have already been saved by the power of Jesus. And so if God can save us from the greatest enemy of all, namely our own sinfulness, man, he can save us from anything. And he does. You see, just like in the book of Esther, we can turn back. We can read the back of this book. And we can see that the Jews win. 
They win through the power of God's providential hand. But you know what? We don't just need to turn to the back of Esther to see that God's people win. We can turn to the back of this book. Turn to the back of this book and we will win through the power of God. He will save us. Even when it seems like his enemies triumph. We know. Because we have the end of the story right here. We win because God wins. And we can trust him. Even when it seems like he's gone. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for that great reminder. Just as that old southern gospel song says, we read the back of the book and we win. So we see from your word that that is the case. But Lord, we don't win because of our own faithfulness. Oh God, if we, if we survive the enemy because of our own faithfulness or because of our own ability to earn our way out, oh God, we would have no hope whatsoever. But God, we, we are not saved because of our works. We're not saved because of our effort. We're not saved because of our own faithfulness. Oh God, we are... We are saved because of your faithfulness, because of what you have done. Oh God, when it seems like the enemy triumphs, God, help us to trust you. Help us to trust in the promises of your word, because it is in your word, in this book, that we see that you win. You always win. You came here to win. You will come again to win. And, oh God, work that truth deeply in us. And when we feel discouraged, when we wonder where you are, God, help us to trust in the fact that you are working. Oh God, help us to trust you. Help us to trust you. In the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Our hymn of response uh, this morning is number 75, O Father. You are sovereign, number 75. Please stand as we sing together.